You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. John 15. Hear the words of the living God. I am the true vine, and my father, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So coming after the summer, uh, going into my sophomore year of college, had to go early. I was part of student leadership at the Bible college that I was at, and, uh, and we had to get things set up for the new freshmen that were coming into school. And, uh, and I got teamed up at, like, the admissions desk where you, uh, where you welcome the freshmen as they come in. I got teamed up with this girl that I knew of um, as a freshman but didn't know very well. And, man, we kind of hit it off. Me and this girl were super, uh, had, a, had a great time together. She was pretty. She was funny. She was fun. Uh, my roommate liked her. And so all of this, uh, we started to hang out together. And over the next couple of months, began to, uh, to really enjoy hanging out together, had this friendship building. We were a good team whenever we were teamed up in student leadership. And after a while, uh, some friends of mine kept asking, so what's the deal with you and Bree? Like, what's going on there? And uh, I was like, oh, we're friends. We like each other. It's been, it's been fun to kind of hang out together. Uh, but there came a point where the interest was strong enough that uh, it was like we needed to have the DTR. You know what the DTR is? The define the relationship. Uh, so we had been what, you know, what we called in Bible college friending. Um, I don't know why we called it that, but it was like this, like not quite dating, but kind of dating that everybody kind of knows. And maybe you don't even know yet, but, uh, Brie was the kind of girl that I just, no one, she just, she just turned down everyone. So guys had, had tried to ask her out, but she just, she just wasn't interested. And I actually found that kind of, uh, attractive in and of itself and a bit intimidating. And so when the time came, we were at a, a soccer game together, I was able to kind of peel off with her a little bit as we're watching the soccer game and just awkwardly sort of asked her uh, if she would be interested in uh, in dating me and uh, fingers crossed it went well she said yes and uh, we started dating each other and long story short 
We've been married 15 years and have three kids. So, um, but that DTR, that define the relationship, that moment when it's like we need to figure out kind of where this is going and what the future is going to be. We need to be on the same page in terms of how these things go going forward. And so what we have in John chapter 15 is I think we have the Jesus version of that. We have the Jesus version of defining the relationship between him and his disciples. We're getting towards the end of Jesus' life. He, it is the night before he's about to be crucified. And, uh, and this is the purpose for which he came. He came to save the world. He came to die on the cross uh, to, to vindicate the holiness of God, to forgive the sins of mankind, to bear the wrath of God on the cross. And, uh, and, and so his time has come. And his disciples have been with him for three years and have seen and heard some amazing things. And, uh, and so what's happened is, is that Jesus is now giving them this big burst of teaching in chapters 13 through, well, really through 17 through 16 and, and then his prayer in 17 um, as he prepares them for uh, a radical shift, a radical shift in how this is going to go because he's going to die and raise again and then he's going to ascend and their relating to him is going to be a lot different than what they have experienced so far. And so... This is Jesus' defining the relationship in, in verses uh, 1 through 17. He has just spent some time with them in the upper room, and, uh, and, and he took the Passover meal with them. He totally redefined it in such a way that it's now about him. This is the new covenant in my blood, and he's establishing a brand new covenant people. He's, he, he, is, he is saying that all of this Old Testament stuff was really about him, and he's the fulfillment of these things. He washes their feet. He gives them a new commandment. And then in chapter 14, he gives them some promises. I go to prepare a place for you. I will take you to be where I am. And then in the last part that we saw last week, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, a helper, that when he goes away, they're not just going to be on their own. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to be their helper. And now in chapter 15, they've left the upper room. They're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is about to pray and where he's going to be arrested. And on the way, he continues to teach them. And he, uh, along the way, defines the relationship. So our, the title of our message today is Abide in Christ. That's really the bottom line of this text. But in verses 1 through 7, we see Jesus defining the relationship. How will you relate to me? How will you, even though I'm gone and I'm ascended, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, you have my promises, you have my teachings, you have my new commandments. How are we supposed to do this, Jesus? How are we, to ha what is this relationship going to be like? What is our role? What is your role? And so Jesus defines the relationship in 15, 1 through 7. Um, and then what he's going to do in verses 8 through 17 is describe the results of that relationship. That if you abide in me, if you are rightly related to me, these kinds of things are going to be produced in you and through you. So there's going to be an internal and an external result of your right relationship with me. But you need to understand the nature of this relationship. We need to define who does what and how this goes. And that's what Jesus is doing. So let me just read verses 1 through 7 again. And then we'll walk our way through it uh, together uh, on this first point of Jesus defining the relationship. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So Jesus defines the relationship by using an analogy. And he's like, it's like a vine. It's like a grapevine. And the way this relationship works is that I'm the vine. I am the one that is rooted and grounded. I am the one that contains the life, and you are the branches. Your connection to me is your connection to life. Jesus alone provides the life, and then we see that the Father provides the care. The vine dresser there doesn't mean that he dresses up the vine in clothes or something. The vine dresser is the gardener, the one who cares for it, the one who is attentively watching to make sure that the vine and the branches do what they're supposed to do. Make sure that they relate to each other right so that there's a maximum amount of fruit. What's the point of planting a vineyard? To get fruit for the owner. 
And so God is vested and interested in this life-giving vine of Jesus producing fruit through the branches. And Jesus is saying, I alone provide the life, and the Father is providing the care. He's not disinterested. He's not far off. He is tending with his own hands to the branches and the vine. The branches don't bear, bear, the, uh, branches bear the fruit, or they don't. So there's a couple different kinds of branches. We'll get to those in a moment. But just a little bit about verse 1. Verse 1 is just like totally re, uh, redefining this whole metaphor of a vine. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, this would have been just shocking and stunning, I think, to people who knew their Old Testament. If you had been living the Jewish life, the Jewish heritage for hundreds and hundreds of years, this would have rung in your head like the vine. Because in the Old Testament... Um, the, the, the prophets and uh, the scriptures from the Old Testament speak often of Israel being God's vine. In Isaiah chapter 5, which we'll look at in a moment, Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 19, and Hosea 10, Psalm 80 as well, speak of Israel being like God's vine that he took out of Egypt and planted in this place and was expecting a certain kind of fruit from them. So Jesus is setting himself up as a fulfillment of and, a, in a sense, a replacement of the plan for Israel, that God's new people, this life-giving vine that's supposed to give shade and fruit to the whole world, is, uh, is now him. He's the true vine, which means there is a false vine or a vine that's no longer in play, and that's, the, that's what he's, he's talking about here, is that he is, he's drawing on an analogy here that's in the Old Testament. We'll look at Isaiah 5 in just a moment. But what's fascinating about this is that Jesus is moving through. He's moving through the upper room. He's going to, this, uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is not very far away. And uh, both Tacitus and Josephus and a bunch of early, those are early Roman historians, but also uh, older Jewish literature, tell us that in the temple there was this ornamental vine made of gold that was like decorative that just was all over the place just a tremendous amount of gold in this ornament of the vine and fruit coming off the vine. It, it even talks about some of, the, some of the, uh, the, the histories say that people would actually come and like put their offering, like if they're bringing their grain offering or their whatever offering, they would actually sometimes hang it on that vine. And the idea being is that Israel is like God's vine that's meant to be fruitful, that's meant to be a blessing to the whole world. And so as Jesus is talking about being the true vine, they would have thought because they'd been in the temple so long, that Jesus is saying that, man, I am, I am the true vine. I am the true temple. I am the true people of God. Also, this would have been super familiar to the people in their day because vines were perhaps all over the place. This is a very much a agricultural place, uh, and grapes grew there. And so Jesus is drawing on, Jesus is doing a very masterful uh, illustration here. He's drawing from Old Testament history. He's drawing from the visual that they would see in their culture and, uh, and saying that he is the true vine, saying that he is the one who brings life. So Jesus' statement here is so multifaceted. And if you would turn to me for just a moment into Isaiah chapter 5. So if you are able to, you can turn there. You can just listen as well. Isaiah chapter 5 um, is 700 years before Jesus. And this would have been a key text that I think most every good Jewish uh, person would have a familiarity with. And so here's what Isaiah chapter 5 says. Isaiah chapter 5 uh, says this. He says, Let me sing for my beloved, this is God speaking of his people Israel, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. This is a metaphor of, of God clearing the nation of Israel and bringing his people out of Egypt and planting these people to flourish in this special place. And so this is a metaphor. It's like a, a gardener who clears out the ground and tills it up, and then he's going to plant, and he wants there to be beautiful, enjoyable fruit from this vine. So he dug it. He cleared it of stones and planted it with his choice vine. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a vine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. God's people were unfaithful to him. The Israelite people did not live as they ought to have before him. And so all of these images in the Old Testament speak of God planting this vineyard, wanting something from his people, and they're failing to do it. 
And so God disciplines them, and God lets, and here's what it says in verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, the men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? I did everything for them. I brought them out. I gave them blessing and provision. I sent them prophets. I did miracles. And yet they w- still, their hearts are idolatrous. Still, they won't walk with me. Still, they long to be, um, they long to be about themselves as, as, as opposed to uh, about me. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds, and they they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so here we see that God's people, though they were filled with so many blessings, they were given every opportunity because their hearts were not changed. They did not bear the fruit. And so you see Israel failing in its call to be a light to the nations. And then what you have... Um, is that God says that he's going to remove it. He's going to allow them to be disciplined. He's going to allow his vineyard to be ravaged in that way. And, um, and, but there's a promise, and this comes at the end of chapter 6, that though the stump, though it's going to be wasted away, there is going to be a shoot that comes. God is going to get the fruit that he deserves, and it's going to come through one who is going to be the true vine. There's going to be one who comes who's going to be the true son, the true, the true Israel. And Jesus is now saying to his disciples, Just before he's about to go to his crucifixion, he's drawing on all of that imagery, and he is saying that I am the true vine. Where Israel failed, I have not failed. Where they failed to keep the covenant, I have kept the covenant. I have been the one who is the, 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 I am the true vine. I will provide a newer, truer people of God who are defined by a newer and truer access to God. I am the true vine. And then he says, my vine is the, or my father is the vine dresser. Jesus isn't setting up his own thing. Like, hey, you could go kind of the Israel law route. You could go the old vine route. Or you could go the new vine route. No, this was my father's plan from the beginning. And he is tending this vine. He is tending to those who have put their faith in me. Those who abide in me. The branches that are connected to the true vine have the father's careful attention. And so he is saying here that this is not him creating his own other religion, he is saying, no, I'm the true vine. I am the plan of God from the very beginning, and I am the source of life for all people who will be connected to me. Verse 2. Go back to John, John 15. Verse 2. So so just know that that first verse is just a total, is just a a ground-shaking, this is a a paradigm-shifting thing that he is saying here, is that now the people of God are those who are connected to me. Not those who grew up with Jewish heritage, not those who abide to the Old Testament law. No, the people of God, the true vine, eternal life comes from those who are connected to me. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And so there are two kinds of branches. He'll talk about this also in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers and branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And so just in a very simple, just to, to kind of simplify this, is he's, he's laying out that there's a couple of kinds of branches. There's two kinds of branches. There are those that produce fruit, and there are those that don't produce fruit. And so the way that you can tell who my people are is that they will produce my fruit. If they're connected to my life, my life will come through them, and there will be fruit. And what the Father will do is he will remove the lifeless branches. So you can think of Judas. Judas appeared to be one of the 12, right? He, in every way from the exterior, seemed to be just like everybody else, but it, sh- it turns out that he did not produce fruit. And in the sense, just a chapter, two chapters before, Christ, or the Father, removed him, right? So it's not everyone who appears to be part of the people of God is, and you can tell by the fruit they produce. And Judas produced bad fruit. He did not produce true fruit. So there's this removing of lifeless branches, Think Judas, and that's the father's job. The father does that. And there's the pruning of fruitful branches. 
So think of discipline, think of suffering, think of loss. God uses those things to prune us. Now, if you plant something, you, you need to prune it, like especially these vines here, is that you have to prune them. There's all these kinds of buds that develop, and if you're not careful, those buds will kind of suck the life too many different directions, and it won't produce the kind of fruit that it's meant to. And so every good gardener prunes it, prunes that excess stuff so that the most healthy branches, the most healthy fruit grows the biggest and the fullest. And so what this tells us is that the Father prunes the, so he determines, he determines and he judges between the lifeless and the, not, and the, and the fruitful, the fruitless and the fruit, fruitful vines or branches. And he will do, he will tend to it, he will do the painful thing of cutting those true branches as an act of discipline to make them more fruitful. So this should tell you that being connected to Jesus Christ is going to come with some pain. Because the Father is going to cut things from your life to make you fruitful. Many of you have felt that before, right? The pruning hand of God where something that you loved very deeply was taken from you. And maybe you wonder, God, why? Why did you take that from me? But the Father knows. He knows what's best for the branches. He knows what will bring the most fruit. And he is precise in how he uses the scissors. And the vine, the branch may not fully understand why Certain areas are being pruned and certain are not, but there's a trust. There needs to be a trust that's staying connected to the vine, and if you're pr producing fruit, if you're being pruned, that's a good sign. It's a good sign if you're being pruned by God because it means that he's not throwing you away, and he's going to make you fruitful. He's paying attention. Often when we go through something difficult, we wonder, where is God? And that's not a bad question. The psalmist asks that question a lot. But I think this text is telling us that sometimes the painful things are evidence that God is pruning us. He has a plan for us. There is fruit being produced, and whether, we, whether it feels good in the moment or not, the Father uh, is pruning us if we are connected to him, and there is fruit. So this isn't like, and, and in verse 4 he says, uh, or verse 3, he says, Already you are clean because you abide of the word that I have spoken to you. And so he's, he's giving them the, the assurance that we've already, when it comes to these 12 disciples, we've already trimmed off the dead branch. Judas is gone, and I want you to have confidence. You are clean. I want you to have assurance that you are abiding in me. You are being pruned by God even now. And maybe he's referring back a little bit to the washing of their feet and their willingness to submit to that, their willingness to be served by that, their connection to him. Maybe you are already clean not only because of that, but because of the word that I've spoken to you. There's been this symbolism. There's been this, this teaching, and you are abiding in me. So he does, he does want them to have confidence. I think you're one of the fruitful branches. You're, the Father is, is pruning you. He hasn't cut you off. He's pruning you, and he is sustaining you. So he's giving them confidence here. Verse 4, here's their response. Abide in me, and I in you. Abide, abide in me, and I in you. The main overall point here is that Jesus alone provides the life, the Father actively tends to the branches, and the branches then bear the fruit. Get that? That's the relationship. Here's the relationship to God. Now that he has ascended into heaven, in light of his promises, in light of the Holy Spirit, you abide in him, he abides in you, and you will produce the fruit of that life um, uh, by being connected to him. I love what Amy Carmichael says. She was a missionary um, like a hundred years ago, maybe not quite a hundred years ago, she was in India for a long time, rescuing girls out of sex trafficking, devoted her whole life to that, went through a tremendous amount of loss, went through a tremendous amount of pain, and, uh, and here is one of the wonderful things that she wrote. She said this, Rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. Lord, I want you to prune whatever will not produce the most fruit for you. And she goes on to say, because now she kind of realizes what she's prayed, <laughs> and here's what she says. What prodigal waste it appears to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and bare stem blessing in a hundred places from the sharp steel. That was her kind of fancy way of saying, I see so much of my life trimmed from me. And it looks so barren and it looks so uh, discouraging to see all that God has prevented me from happening, from, from having or has cut from me. And so she's, she's grieving the fact that the Father has trimmed all these things from her, has not allowed these, these things to be a part of her life. But here's what she said. 
but with a tried and true husbandman, meaning gardener, there is not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away, which it would not have been lost to keep and gain to lose. That it would not be lost to keep and gain to lose. So everything that I see trimmed from me, desires unfulfilled, things that seem to be taken from me, there is no loss in those things because the Father has a plan for me. Does that make sense? There's a fruitfulness. What a, what a, what an intimidating prayer, right? What an amazing prayer that God has not withheld anything good from me. And anything that he has withheld from me, I was better off without in that sense of being fruitful for him. That's a, that's a tough one to think through when you think about specifics, but it is the, the trustworthy um, um, this is this is this is the right perspective in light of of John 15. So how, how what is our responsibility then in this relationship? How do we get in on this relationship? How do we bear the fruit for God that he intends for us? And the word that comes up 11 times in this passage is the word abide. Abide. Look at verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He's just trying to drive this into our heads because we're dense, right? (laughs) I'm the vine, you're the branches. You're not the vine, and I'm the branch. I'm not just something you kind of add into your life. I am your life, and you have to be added to me, right? I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. He's already said that. He's just repeating himself for, for emphasis. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And so the key word here is abide. We are never commanded in this passage to produce the fruit. The vine produces the fruit. We're commanded to abide. So we're not trying to create good works for God. We're not trying to earn our right standing before God. We are clinging to him as our life, and he produces the fruit in us. We don't produce the fruit. He produces the fruit. The fruit is produced by the vine through the branches, and you have the wonderful privilege of bearing it, holding it out, holding it up. The fruit that Jesus is connecting is creating through you. So the idea of abide here is, is the idea of connection, abide. The branch is, is connected to the life of the vine. So connected, it also has the idea of union, that it is one with the branch and the vine, that you don't really know where one ends and one begins because the branch is so far in the vine and the vine so extends up into the branch that there's this union between the branch and the vine that they are one. The word abide is very similar to the word abode, right? Your abode, your home, the place where you rest, the place where you find yourself most comfortable, Uh, And so this has this idea of dwelling. Uh, So to abide in Christ is to make your home in Christ. It's where you rest. It's where you you are at home. You are most identified with him. It has the idea of identity, is that I abide in Christ, meaning I find my identity in him. I don't find my identity apart from him. I find my identity solely in him, that being in Christ is the truest thing about me. The idea of remaining or persevering. So he says, abide in me, and if you continue to abide, and the idea is being, don't leave me. Don't abandon your faith. Don't abandon Jesus. So this is not just pray a prayer, and you'll go to heaven when you die, and then go about your life. No, this is about find your whole life in me, and don't ever find your life in anything else. Don't ever seek for anything other than just me. So this idea of, if you abide in me, Stay abiding in me. Continue to abide in me. So we've got connection. We've got union. We've got dwelling. We've got identity. We've got persevering. Stay connected to me. Cling to me. Um, J.C. Ryle puts it this way. Abide in me. Cling to me. Stick fast to me. Live life of close and intimate communion with me. Get nearer and nearer to me. Roll every burden on me. Cast your whole weight on me. Never let go on me for a mo- let, never let go of your hold on me for a moment, and so we have this idea of us abiding in Him. We cling to Him. We live in Him. We find our identity in Jesus and Jesus alone. So we've got kind of this p- 
passive and active, we've got this two-part abiding. Because Jesus doesn't just say abide in me, but I abide in you. So what does that mean? Here's what I think it means. I think by abiding in him, it means that we find our identity in him. We rest in what he's done for us. We trust, we believe in him, and we find our identity in Christ. When he says, abide in, I abide in you, he also says things like, my words abide in you. And so this is sort of the active part of abiding. I think there's some out there that think abiding just means that we just kind of sit back on, a, you know, on an easy chair and just let, you know, just th- let things happen to us. But there is an active part of abiding. There is the passive part of receiving by faith all that Jesus has done for us, knowing that we don't have to earn any of it. But the other part of it is my words abide in you, which means we need to know his word. So the active part of our abiding is that we need to internalize his word. Abide in me by internalizing my words. So make me your home. That's the passive part. Live in me. Rest in me. Find your security and identity in me. The active part is make my word your food. You have to actively eat food, right? Like it takes a little bit of effort to eat. This is not earning. You're not earning your food. Christ is providing your food freely. But you have to make the effort of abiding, having his word abide in you. You need to digest it. You need to take it in. You need to read and study and meditate, fill, savor, obey, apply. So we, the passive side of abiding is that we rest only in Christ. We find our identity in him and we, can, we don't have to earn it. Him abiding in us means that we're actively chewing on his word. We're doing that together. Jesus says, follow me, be my disciple, obey. These are hearing, owning, living the teachings of Jesus Christ. You get the, get the point? Abide in me and I in you. So there's an active and a passive part of, of the abiding. It's not just that we find our life in Jesus that's true, but also he, his life needs to be in us by the Holy Spirit, by his word. So abide in my love, trust in what I've done for you, but then also take what I've taught you and live it. Internalize it. Get Get, get going in that way. So uh, here's, here's just an illustration about how uh, abiding works. There's, there was a small town in Texas years and years ago where the school had burned to the ground and a bunch of people perished in that school burning down because they didn't have a sprinkler system. So they rebuilt the school and put a state-of-the-art fire prevention equipment and a state-of-the-art uh, sprinkler system in the building and uh, as they, they went and they showed everybody just, man, this is going to be so much better. We're never going to have this loss of life again. And uh, everyone was really proud of the sprinkler system that had been put in. So then y- years later, they decided to expand the school. And as they tied into that sprinkler system, they realized they never tied it into water. They had a state-of-the-art sprinkler system but didn't tie it to the source. And so... While it looked great, it looked like it was abiding, it didn't have what was needed going through it to actually accomplish anything, right? And so that's kind of the idea here, is that we, not just need, we don't just need our connection to be in Jesus, we need his life going through us to produce the fruit. That sprinkler system looked amazing, but because it didn't have the water in it, it would have been completely ineffective and they would have had the same tragedy again, a simple oversight. So we abide in him, we're connected like that, framework connected to the source but then what that source provides need to be needs to be coursing through our veins we need the word of god coursing through our lives coursing through our veins and that means that we need to abide in his word we need to obey his word we need to read it we need to study it we need to meditate it It needs to be a part of our conversations that it's just pinging off us all the time that's why coming to worship's a big deal is that we want to feast on god's word together and have his life coursing through us his word coursing through us And that takes some effort on our part. So bottom line, there is one way to a meaningful, abundant life that pleases God, and that's Jesus Christ. Therefore, center your whole life on your union with him. Abide in his love and what he's done for you. Draw everything you need for for every day from him and him alone, always. Make him and what he's done for you your identity. And make his words your food. That's what he means by abide in me and have me abide in you. Soak up, take in, find yourself entirely in me. That's your aim. God's primary call on you is not ministry but intimacy. He'll do ministry through you, 
once you have intimacy with him. Your primary call as a human being is to have intimacy with God through Christ. And then out of that, he will begin to produce fruit. Right? There's not good branches and bad branches. There's alive branches and dead branches. And we are made alive by being united with Christ. And he does the good works through us. We're not commanded to do the good works. We're commanded to abide. And he will produce the fruit. So verses 8 through 17, Jesus describes the result. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pause right there for a moment. So what's the result of, of abiding in Jesus Christ? Is that you bear fruit. That's the result of abiding with Christ. It's not what makes you united with Christ is how good you are. It's the fruit that you already are. You bear fruit eight times. It's mentioned that we bear fruit. Notice the progression. Bear fruit in verse, uh, is that verse 2? And then it progresses to he prunes the vine and it bears much fruit. See that? It starts small. Our relationship with God starts small, right? So if you became a Christian and, you, and the change was really slow, well, that's kind of how it goes, right? You bear fruit. He prunes you. You bear a little more fruit. And then it goes on to uh, verse 16. As we'll get in just a moment, you'll see that you'll go and bear more fruit. So the fruit will start to spread and multiply. And then he says your fruit will abide means that your fruit will be lasting. It will last on into eternity. So it starts small. The branches that are connected to Christ start small. The grapes start small. So don't get discouraged. Fa the Father is going to continue to tend you, and over the course of your life, you'll become more fruitful. And that fruit will spread, and that fruit will multiply, and that fruit is going to last down through generations. It's going to last. It's going to be lasting, abiding fruit. So look what else the result is. Look at verse 8. The fact that you're united with Christ and bearing fruit means that God gets the glory. See that? It glorifies the Father. These are external results. Let's look at it this way. There's some external results in verses 8 through 11. External results is that your union with Christ produces fruit that glorifies the Father, proves your authenticity to the world, right? Proves that you're authentic. It connects you to the divine love of Jesus Christ, verse 9. It enables your obedience, verse 10, and it delights Jesus, verse 11. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Did you know that th this, this could mean a couple different things, that Jesus is really joyful and he wants you to have his joy. It also could mean, I think it means both, is that Jesus is delighted in you. My joy's in you. I delight in my daughter, right? I find joy in my son sons right so it's it's not just i don't think not just that jesus takes the joy that he has and puts it in you i think it is that but also that i am delighted in you you have become my joy by abiding in me isn't that amazing my joy may be in you and your joy may be full i actually think it maybe means both of those things and so we delight J jesus so those are the external results the father's glorified you're authenticated, you're connected to divine love, you're now able to obey the commands of Jesus, and Jesus is delighting in you. But look at 12 through 17, and these are the internal. I think here's some of the internal results. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the name of my Father, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you love one another. So what is the fruit? I think to boil it down, the fruit that Jesus is talking about is love. It's love. He said this back in John 13. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. 
By this, all people will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Fruit is singular in Galatians 5. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control is all describing one thing, and I think it's describing Christ's love, Christ's character. So the fruit is this, the life of Jesus coming into you, through you, and out of you. That's what a branch does, right? It takes the life of the vine, and it passes through the branch, and then that life comes out in the branches. And that's how you know who the Jesus followers are is because Jesus starts to spill out of them. So we have uh, strawberry plants in our front yard, and guess what we get tons of? Strawberry plants. How do we know they're strawberry plants? Because there's strawberries on them, right? No one went and just stapled fake strawberries on them. It naturally produces that, and that's what happens to those who abide in Jesus Christ. Those who truly know Jesus Christ begin to have the life of Christ come out of them, right? And so here's some of the external. Here's, here's what that love looks like. You grow in obedience to Christ's commands. Verses 10, 12, 14, 17. It's not perfect, but you grow. This is not to demonstrate your love for me. That, when Jesus says, um, uh, let me see if I can find the verse. Um, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Um, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Um, man, I'm having a hard time finding the word, verse. Oh, verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's love and abide in his love. Um, and so this idea of we don't obey his commands to demonstrate our love. We focus on loving him and the obedience to his, his commands will begin to come out of us. Does that make sense? So it's, not, it's a cart before the horse kind of thing. You focus on loving and abiding in Jesus and his commands will all of a sudden become a lot more attractive to you. Does that make sense? It's the, it's the result of that. So you grow in obedience. I love what Augustine said. He said, love God and do what you want. Now, that's a scary thing to say, but you have to get the love God part right, right? You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, and you will begin to want. He will change your wanter. And so you will actually want to obey his commands. You'll actually want to live a more loving life. So love God and then do what you want because your desires are going to be for him. Your desires are going to be to grow in him. So it's not obedience to prove that you love. It's focus on love, and obedience will come. Secondly, you grow in Christ's overflowing joy. Did you see that? My joy will be in you, and your joy will be complete. I love what Hebrews 12.2 says, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and then was raised and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. So, so that's telling us that Jesus was able to see to and through the cross to a joy that made him want to endure the cross for us, right? And his joy is so willing to go to that extent, and he's saying, I'm going to put that kind of joy in you, that you're willing to suffer and go and take up your cross and follow me joyfully. Because of the joy set before, me, he, he, before him, he endured the cross so also, because his joy is now in us through abiding in him, we take up our cross for him. And we do what's, this joy dwarfs the pain and prompts endurance. This joy is for endurance through suffering and pain and into a reward of glory, right? You grow in friendship with Christ. Isn't that one of the sweetest phrases in all of scripture? Verse 14, you are my friends. So abiding in Christ means that we have friendship with Jesus. Jesus could tell us to endure because he's the boss. I'm the king. I'm telling you to obey. I'm telling you to abide. Now do it. And he does that in certain places. But he gives us more detail. He gives us why. And so when he calls us to remain, endure, abide, he's doing it as a friend, right? You're not just slaves that I boss around. You're my friends that I really care about that I really want to be uh, in intimate relationship with. Also, we see that you grow in confidence of Christ's promises. When he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So it's almost like it's as good as done, right? 
He's like, I chose you, and I'm not going to screw up. So you can rest in the fact, and you can pursue him in the fact of knowing that he is going to complete the work he began in you, right? And so part of the fruit of abiding in him is a confidence in his purposes. You grow in your effectiveness in prayer. We see that at the end of chapter or verse um, um, verse 7, I think it is, and then here at the end of verse 16. Uh, ask whatever, whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give it to you. And so we grow in our effectiveness in prayer. And then lastly, we grow in our love for fellow Christians. So here we go. We're abiding in Christ. We're finding our life in him. His word is finding its place in us. He, the, it's a little bit at first, and then the Father prunes, and there's a little more fruit. The Father prunes. You abide in the person work of Christ. You make a little effort to have his word take up residence you. You bear a little more fruit. He continues to prune. You're in your Bible a little bit more. You've got a friend that you're going to do the Bible with. You produce a little more fruit. And it's this process that over the course of your life, more and more of Christ-likeness comes out of you. So do you see the sweetness of this? Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this so much better than law-keeping? Isn't this so much better than five pillars? Isn't this so much better than Eastern mysticism or just believing in yourself, right? It's so much better than self-help. It's we get to be the branches connected to the life of Christ and he begins to produce fruit in us. So we all have an offer on the table right now to be united to the sweetness of eternal life and love and the pleasure of God right now. This life is available to you through the person and work of Christ. And if you'll take his words and internalize them and you'll find your identity in him, you'll come to this place where these fruit will begin to produce, be produced in you. So find your home and identity in him. Make sure that his words are finding their place in you. Pursue it. He'll bear the fruit in you and you'll receive all that is promised. So is Jesus your abode? Is he the place that you abide and rest and find your identity? If you're not sure, test your heart with this question. What person or thing is so important that if you lost it, you would be unable to go on? What is that thing that if you lost it, you would be you, your life would essentially be over. That might be the thing you're abiding in. The good news is, is that if we abide in Christ, that will never be taken away from us. Does Jesus, do Jesus' words abide in you daily? Do you have a plan to take the Bible in every day? Do you encourage one another in abiding? Speak often of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Confess where you're tempted to abide in something else. Confess your sins to one another. Ask probing spiritual questions with one another about how we're relating to Jesus. Ask each other what we've been reading and learning in Scripture. Let us help one another because actually the abide in me is in the plural there. Y'all abide in me. We have to do it together. We need each other. We can't do it together. So the Lord's Day worship like we're gathered here today, before and after church conversations and prayer, our 915 classes, our small groups, our Monday morning men's study, on the union with Christ of all things at 6 a.m. at Dunn Brothers on Monday morning are all intended, all intended to help us find ourselves in Christ and take his word within us so that we will bear fruit for Christ. We will bear fruit for the Father and we might have this joy and this confidence and this effectiveness and this love. So I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. I'm going to close with this. This is from his book, Life Together. This is great. The book has all kinds of things in it that are helpful and some things that are just confusing. But I love this right here. The Christian is the man who no longer seeks his salvation, his deliverance, his justification in himself, but in Jesus Christ alone. He abides in Jesus. He knows that God's word and Jesus Christ pr pronounces guilt even when he does not feel his guilt. And God's word in Jesus Christ pronounces him not guilty and righteous even when he does not feel that he is righteous at all. So this abiding, sometimes we feel it, sometimes we don't. But we abide when we believe it's true. The Christian no longer lives of himself by his own claims and his own justification, but by God's claims and God's justification. He lives wholly by God's word pronounced upon him, whether that word declares him guilty or innocent. So he believes God's word. He abides in Christ regardless of how he's feeling. And then I love this. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. 
He needs him again and again when he seems uncertain and discouraged. For by him he cannot keep himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is sometimes weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. Right? Sometimes we need to borrow one another's faith. Sometimes we need to help one another grow. Sometimes we need to help each other abide. So let us go to the Lord in prayer right now. We'll sing one more song and have a Q&A. But let's just spend a moment now taking stock of our relationship to Jesus. He's defined the relationship. He's the vine. We're the branches. Are we abiding in him? Let's just take stock of our own lives here for just a moment and ask the Lord to reveal whether we're abiding in him or we're not. God, we come before you and I just pray that we would all just search our hearts in these moments. Lord, we thank you for making it clear in your word. We thank you for using a word picture like this that helps us get our minds around this spiritual reality that's hard to, to, to think about, but it's like vine and branches. And so, Lord, I pray that we would trust that you are who you said you are, that you earned a perfect righteousness and right standing before God, that you are the true vine who kept the covenant. And then you willingly went to the cross on our behalf to bear our sin. We broke the covenant and deserved the punishment. You kept the covenant and deserved the reward. And you are willing to trade with us to take our punishment and to give us your reward. And you rose again, and if we will believe, then we are abiding like a branch in a vine. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe what you've said and what you've done. And, God, we pray that you would bring our dead lives to life, that we would cling to you above all else, that your word be, would begin to course through our veins, that we would have an appetite for it, that we would make time for it, that we would talk about it often, and that you would bear the fruit of love in our lives. So, God, I pray that you would be attaching dead branches to yourself even now by faith in Christ. And God, that maybe we would bear more fruit because now we understand it maybe a little bit better that we need to seek your word. We need to find our rest in you. And Lord, so I pray that, uh, that this would be a pruning today, a pruning in our own lives that we might bear much fruit. God, thank you for your promises. Thank you for making this relationship available to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
to this I hold, my shepherd will defend me, and through the deepest valleys he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been and Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for He has said that He will bring me home. And day by day, I know He will renew me, until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to Him. And when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, and not I, but through Christ in me. Till my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. take a seat for just a moment we won't keep you too much longer i promise but we want to open it up for some questions if there are any hello can you hear me is that better louder i can hear you can you hear me now okay um yeah i have a few questions and then i'll i'll open it up uh to Everyone here. It was helpful, I think, particularly the image of the the uh, sprinkler system, uh, having it not hooked up to the source, and the idea that we need to have Christ in us, flowing through us, and that He's kind of the main. Which I think the passage, He's the main thing, but so often we're tempted to make ourselves the main part of the show, and you know we have to be up and running for the whole Christianity thing to be working. Um, so, um, as far as one question is, he talks about these branches that get cut away. Um, who are these branches that don't end up abiding? Um, yeah, I think that basically it's believers versus unbelievers. Um, and uh, you can know them by their fruit. So, I think largely, largely it's you know, those that don't ultimately end up bearing fruit prove to not be disciples, whether they claim to be disciples and then ultimately are, are not mm -hmm. genuine or whether they're people that never claim to be it at all, I think. Um, I think both could be in view there. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a curious passage because you're like, who are these folks that at least at some point seem to be connected to Christ but then 
ultimately don't. Right, yeah, I think especially verse 2, there's a couple different ways that people interpret this and without going into a big, long thing, because it is a, a big, long thing. <laughs> uh, it says, every branch in me um, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and that in every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That takes away is, uh, is an interesting word. It's iro in Greek. And uh, most of the time, it is translated in such a way as to, like, take away, which is what you see here. Uh, in a few places, it, it speaks of, of, of it being lift up. And so there's a couple different ways that people have interpreted that, that maybe this is uh, unfruitful new believers that, that then are kind of brought up off the ground, which is, which is what you would do with a genuine vine, is that you get that, get that vine up off the ground, it'll start producing fruit. Mm. Um, so that could be one that it's actually maybe speaking of three kinds of branches. Um, uh, but, you know, it's one of those where, like, just in our English you can kind of make a pretty good case one way or the other. Um, and uh, I think I generally, I, I switched positions a couple times this week just because the, the arguments can be pretty compelling. So I'm slightly leaning towards uh, these are the same branches as in chapter 6, and he's talking about them actually being taken away. He's talking about two, two kinds of branches. But uh, the issue is, is that with that Greek word iro, is that it has a range of meanings, which we have this in English, right? If I say the word trunk, could mean trunk of an elephant could mean trunk of a tree, could mean trunk of a car, right? So you need the context to tell you then what the point, uh, what word, if I say I put the suitcase in the trunk, you're probably not thinking elephant anymore, right? I've already limited the range of that word by my sentence. And so I think that in the context here, the fact that he doesn't speak anymore about lifting up unfruitful branches, I think he's actually speaking of two kinds, fruitful and unfruitful. Mm -hmm. But there's a really good case for the other two that Maybe it's three kinds of branches. Okay. And that phrase in me, then, in, in according to my interpretation, is that these are people who appear like Judas. I think the context there mm -hmm. is it looked like Judas was in, but he ultimately didn't produce the, the fruit of Christ's likeness and then was removed. So, yeah. anyway, that's a whole, there's a whole big thing there. Yeah. And uh, I've thought different things at different times, but at the moment yeah. that I preached this sermon. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is... It's kind of a, it's, it's somber, tricky. you know, insofar as that yeah. in the Christian life where um, yeah. it's one of the weirdest things when you yeah. know someone and end up, wa they walk away from the faith after what seems years and you're just kind of like, whoa, what's, yeah. uh, and this, this verse definitely makes you kind of conjures that sort right. of thinking up a little bit. Right. And he's speaking to his disciples, I think, in a way that's meant to be comforting. So this isn't meant to be a passage that just really scares you, but I, if you aren't, Seeing the fruit of Christ's likeness, if there's no growth in love over a long period of time, then there really is some like, maybe I'm not actually in the vine. Maybe I'm not. So it's not about perfection. It's about progress. Am I seeing fruit grow in me? Mm -hmm. And union with Christ is not something we can see. I can't see someone's salvation. It's not like all of a sudden they have a big S that starts up here on the forehead that says mm -hmm. saved. I can't see that. And sometimes people can be deceived. Sometimes people can be deceiving. And so how can you tell? Well, I can tell by the fruit in their life, does that match their profession? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, not perfectly, but just, man, this seems like a person that genuinely, I'm around them, and it seems like they know Jesus, you know? By the way they act and talk, there, there's love. There's a love that comes out of them. There's mm -hmm. a truth that's coming out of them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's mm -hmm. kind of the idea. We can't, I can't see your union with Christ, mm -hmm. but I can see how you live your life and then go, he claims to be a follower of Christ. I see fruit that matches that, mm -hmm. so now I can have some confidence yeah. in that. Does that make sense? It does seem like that there's a dynamic in the passage of his, let my words abide in you and also his love. You know, it seems that you can find people that they often know the Bible, but it seems like it never means anything in their day-to-day -day lives. And then you can find people who kind of genuinely seem kind of like nice people, but Christ's words are like completely absent. So he gives us kind of these two things, it seems, that are kind of crucial. And, yeah, and some have taken this passage to take a very passive approach to the Christian life. Like, I'll just kind of sit back and not do anything, and God will do it all. And you're like, well, there's a sense in which that's true. But he also says, strive for the holiness without which you won't see the Lord. Mm -hmm. So there is an effort, not earning. There's a difference between effort and earning, right? We're not earning our right standing with God, but we are putting an effort to press into mm -hmm. what he's done. We do have a sin nature we're fighting. We are animated. Only an alive fish can swim upstream, right? So <laughs> I want to prove to be alive by putting the effort of fighting sin and pursuing mm -hmm. godliness because I'm actually genuinely alive. Dead things can't 
Dead yeah. things can't produce fruit. Dead fish can't swim upstream. Mm -hmm. But only an alive thing can put forth effort in godliness, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. so those two need to be put together. We're not earning our right standing with God. That's only through connection with Jesus. But we now, because we're connected to him, have a life that allows yeah. us to pursue. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Any Anybody? Questions? Comments? Things that could use clarification from the passage? You're very thorough. <laughs> I went too long. <laughs> and now everybody's tired. Yeah. You good? That's it. Okay, well, let's close this thing out. If you'd please stand. Let's have our benediction. Thanks for being patient. Like, today was strange uh, on the sound front and all that. And thank you for listening through a long sermon. I really am grateful for that. John 15.5. Here we go. We just saw it. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever, whoever ab abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But in him, we can do everything that's pleasing to him. Right? So, God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.